For a while, Sam Bankman-Fried was the most important person in the world of crypto. He was on the cover of Fortune this year being compared to Warren Buffett. 30-year-old billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, better known as SBF, saw a meteoric rise as crypto's golden boy. Here was a guy who his whole life was sort of being groomed or, or being trained to step into the, the topmost ranks of the, of the ruling class. This was a, a guy who was accustomed to talking his way out of, out of every single situation that he was put in. Um, I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone else. He didn't believe it either, you know? <laughs> like, it's, it's a shitty lie. Sam Bankman-Fried, guilty on all seven counts wow. of fraud and conspiracy. A jury found former cryptocurrency mogul Sam Bankman-Fried guilty on all seven counts against him. And what it's being considered the biggest case of its kind for a generation. It's a little satisfying <laughs> to watch. The idea that like he contains this like knowledge that nobody else has access to is super ridiculous and it, you know, shot him in the foot. Welcome to On Strike, a production of Worker Strike Back. I'm Bia Lacombe. And I'm Shama Sawant. Last week, Sam Bankman-Fried, the so-called crypto king and the world's wealthiest person under 30 for a time, was found guilty on all seven counts he was charged with. Bankman-Fried was responsible for the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX and carried out one of the largest financial frauds in the history of capitalism. If given the maximum sentence, the former billionaire, whose net worth just two years ago was $26 billion, will go to prison for the rest of his life. He will also be facing a second trial in March next year on five additional charges, including bribery. This is certainly a story about the criminal and sociopathic behavior of Sam Bankman-Fried, and it's also a story about how digital currency or cryptocurrency is not the path to riches that so much of the corporate media made it out to be. But it's more than that. Because Sam Bankman-Fried was not tried and convicted for being some sort of evil genius who took advantage of some esoteric features of cryptocurrency, the corporate media has really hyped the mystique around cryptocurrency, but you don't need to be an expert on crypto in order to make sense of what happened. Really, this is just a good old-fashioned story of corporate greed and con men, which are both endemic to the capitalist system. And underneath all the glamour and media spectacle around him, Bankman-Fried was just another arrogant billionaire swindler who thought he could get away with financial crimes on a grand scale because no one would be smart enough to catch him. The core of the crime was not complex, right? Like, okay, you just hit everything. Because people from the outside are like, oh, crypto, I don't get it. No, it's, this isn't about crypto. No. Right? It's about stealing. Yoink. It is about saying, <laughs> yes. uh-oh, I'm losing money over here. I got all these customer funds over You've here. You've got deposits I'm gonna in move, Exactly. I'm going to move A and stick it over to B. Right? Ding, ding, ding. You have just fraud explained the, the crime. Right? Sam Bankman fraud right there. We've heard this story so many times before. Savings and loans. Enron. Lehman Brothers. J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon. Goldman Sachs and Lloyd Blankfein. Bernie Madoff. Martin Shkreli. Robin Hood, the list of corporations and wealthy individuals who have swindled millions of people out of billions, and in some cases even hundreds of billions of dollars, and very few of them were sent to prison. Despite the high drama and intrigue surrounding the Bankman-Fried conviction, the bitter truth is that very few of these fraudsters have ever been held accountable by the so-called criminal justice system. So as a lawyer and as a socialist, I have a couple of thoughts about the recent Sam Bankman-Fried 
uh, verdict. First of all, you know, the legal system is a place where the, uh, the rich and the powerful try to put on a display of justice and of accountability. The rich and powerful view the legal system as a place where they can kind of sanitize their system and give it some additional legitimacy. And I think the ruling class went after Sam Bankman fried to try to make an example out of him uh, to try and, and push back against the perception that uh, you know, Wall Street and big business is a corrupt, uh, self-dealing place. And they went after uh, what they probably thought was low-hanging fruit with Sam Bankman-Fried, so an individual who was somewhat isolated, uh, certainly had money and had some power, but not enough money and power to go up toe-to-toe -to -toe against the federal government. The incentive and opportunity to pillage from millions of ordinary people is not about a few rotten apples. Don't get me wrong, Sam Bankman-Fried is totally rotten and unmitigatedly noxious. But he's also just one corrupt individual in a fundamentally rotten, rapacious system. He's not the first billionaire con artist, and he will not be the last, so long as capitalism lasts. So what did Bankman-Fried actually do? To begin with, he was found guilty of stealing billions of dollars from accounts belonging to customers of his once high-flying cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, and money laundering. So to try to describe in simple terms, uh, securities law or federal prosecutions of, of Wall Street investors under securities law uh, is really, really difficult. And the reason why is because the securities industry in Wall Street is filled with so many people who are completely willing not just to skirt the law, but to even violate the law in order to make an extra buck, that it means that the law has been parsed very finely over the years. But I think we could sum it up as this. He, he said that he had money whenever he didn't. He said that there was value behind what he was selling, cryptocurrency, when there really wasn't. Uh, and I think that's sort of the, the, the easiest and most simplest way that we can distill down the charges against Sam Bankman-Fried. And this isn't something that's like, that's unique to cryptocurrency. I mean, it's capitalists and, and the billionaire class misrepresenting the value of their wealth or the value of commodities is as old as capitalism itself. Right now, instead of cryptocurrency, we're seeing a bubble with AI and investments and venture funds. Uh, firms like rapidly throwing money at AI and even, uh, you know, big tech companies like standard big tech companies like Amazon or Google, like they're constantly throwing money around in different places, um, investing in things that are completely speculative, that are uh, bubbles that they just want to see if it's going to return a profit. So I can imagine this happening again, like in a year or two with the exact same dynamics. Uh, it makes me think back to the 17th century, I believe, when there was a, a a huge bubble around uh, the price of tulip bulbs in uh, in the Netherlands. And that was effectively uh, a scheme where tulip bulb investors pumped up the value of these tulip bulbs uh, to a point where it did not bear any relationship to, to reality. And ultimately that bubble crashed. It caused a lot of people to lose a lot of money at the time. And that's effectively the blueprint for all these different types of, of shell games, of confidence schemes, of pyramid schemes, uh, and, and other schemes of the nature that Sam Bankman-Fried was running with the cryptocurrency exchange. And he was found guilty of defrauding lenders to FTX's sister company, the hedge fund Alameda Research, 
which held FTX customer funds in a bank account. On November 2nd of 2022, Coindesk published an article that exposed that 5.8 billion out of the 14.6 billion of assets on the balance sheets of Alameda Research were linked to an FTX crypto token that was made out of thin air. During his trial, he said he learned in 2020 that FTX customer funds were held by Alameda, but he completely failed to take action to safeguard them. One thing that really pissed me off was that I was reading about specifically the FTX case, and one of the organizations that lost a ton of money um, is the Ontario Teacher Pensioner Plan, Pension Plan. So that's like super screwed up that, you know, there's all these like weird investment organizations that are just like pumping rich people's money into this thing. But then there's also like teachers pension plans at risk and that like that has way more of an impact on a teacher than it does on somebody like, you know, the guy from Shark Tank. Bakeman Freed claims he was an innocent bystander in all this fraud. It was just happening around him. The courts rejected this fairy tale and now he faces 110 years in prison. Much is being made in the media about cryptocurrency, of it being some magical money of the future. Not surprisingly, corporate media like The Economist, while condemning Bankman-Fried, also assert that he was just an unfortunate exception in an otherwise promising field of investment that Bankman-Fried has unfairly spoiled crypto's reputation. But really, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and exchanges like FTX are not independent or more democratic than standard currencies or markets. In fact, Bitcoin is less stable than the US dollar and subject to the ups and downs of Wall Street. It's part of the exact same framework which enables few to accumulate ungodly amounts of wealth without doing anything of value at the expense of millions of ordinary people who are doing the actual work of making things run. After FTX declared bankruptcy, it set off a chain reaction in the trillion dollar cryptocurrency world, exposing the decay that always existed underneath the brave new world of digital currency. As some people have noted, Bitcoin should really be called shitcoins. Immediately following the FTX crash in 2021, another cryptocurrency exchange, Gemini, founded by billionaire twins Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, froze customer withdrawals in its lending unit, which later filed for bankruptcy, denuding millions of ordinary people of their hard-earned money. Just last month, New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, filed a lawsuit against three digital asset firms that were caught up in the collapse of Bankman-Fried's empire. Gemini Trust, owned by the Winklevoss twins, Genesis Global Capital, and Digital Currency Group, the parent company of Genesis. An investigation found that Gemini deceived investors about significant risks associated with a lending program it ran jointly with Genesis. The lawsuit alleges that the program, called Gemini Earn, fraudulently marketed itself as a low-risk investment in which customers could lend crypto assets to Genesis while earning interest payments as high as 8%. The lawsuit also accuses the companies of lying to investors and attempting to hide more than a billion dollars in losses. James, the New York Attorney General, said, quote, these cryptocurrency companies lied to investors, and it was middle-class investors who suffered as a result, end quote. At least 230,000 people lost their money. I think in general, my feeling about cryptocurrency is that when regular people invest their money in it, they're expecting the sort of like outcome that rich people like Tom Brady and uh, Giselle have, where it's basically like, they have the cushion of having other money. 
regular working class people investing in crypto don't have that. So you're putting significantly more risk in this like already risky, not backed up form of investment that um, like the wealthy people who get to just play around with their money don't have. Just a few weeks after FTX's bankruptcy in 2021, another crypto lender, BlockFi, also went bust, being intricately connected with FTX and Alameda. Other cryptocurrency firms like Coinbase and Binance ended up laying off significant numbers of employees after the FTX crash and plummeting of the value of Bitcoin and other digital currencies. So why exactly do the rich and powerful sacrifice one of their own? Were they burning up with a guilty conscience about the million ordinary people losing their life savings in the crypto nightmare? Not hardly. And to be clear, they wanted to convict uh, him not because you know they thought what he done what he had done was morally bad or uh, that he was you know a danger to society. They wanted to convict him because they thought that he was a danger to their system, that they could undermine confidence in uh, Wall Street and uh, the securities industry. And also too, he had harmed a lot of uh, the very rich and powerful people that have a, a voice in government that helped to control uh, what the government does. He defrauded the wrong people. He uh, was beginning to undermine the credibility of the system itself. And the federal prosecutors had to go after him for those reasons. They wanted to make an example of someone uh, convicted of really like stealing rich people's money, right? That's the real reason why they uh, uh, went after him. It was this desire to minimize the fallout for their system, which forced the ruling class to hang Bankman-Fried. When, when it, not just FDX, but a number of these other crypto firms collapsed, there needed to be some sort of a scapegoat, some sort of a consequence, some sort of an example made of, uh, uh, of, of, of one, of the, one of the brightest stars of the, of the industry. And, and I guess Sam Bankman-Fried was, uh, was the biggest star in, in, in cryptocurrencies and in this whole world of um, of Bitcoin and, and, and whatnot, because obviously they don't intend to hold the, the, the corporations and not just the crypto exchanges, uh, but, but actually the Wall Street institutions that, that have been backing these enterprises from day one. They don't intend to go after the CEO of Goldman Sachs or, or JP Morgan. It's no accident that this comes at a time when the political establishment as a whole the Democratic and Republican parties, their economy, and all of the institutions of American capitalism have massively lost authority with American working people. So this criminal justice system that works at a snail's pace or not at all, when working and poor people need it, took off at record speed as the ruling class scrambled to salvage the credibility of their system. We saw the, the federal prosecutors um, devote all the resources necessary in order to try to secure a conviction in that direction. Oftentimes it takes complicated cases years to go to trial and uh, the federal prosecutors were able to take this case and, and bring it to a verdict within a year, uh, which indicates to me you know, the level of priority that they placed on trying to secure a conviction against uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. I bet you didn't think that exposing, convicting, and bringing to account a fellow billionaire was ever going to be priority number one for the billionaire class, did you? In fact, it initially wasn't. For a long while after FTX had declared bankruptcy, Bankman-Fried was still being celebrated in corporate media and toasted in the glitzy gatherings of the super wealthy. I think most people expected Sam to go on the run, right? Or, or just to stay silent. Anything that wasn't what he actually did. The first big announcement came from the New York Times. They were hosting an event with some well-known speakers. And among those speakers, 
was none other than Sam Bankman-Fried. The shock to everyone was threefold. I mean, first, that Sam is still active and staying in the Bahamas, seemingly facing no consequences for what's happening. Second, that the New York Times is platforming what may be the biggest financial criminal of the last decade. And third, that he isn't running. He's doing a damn media tour. Sam Bankman-Fried joins us right now, live from the Bahamas. But ultimately, the scandal became far too public and too obvious to ignore. So who is Sam Bankman-Fried, and how did he get away with this for so long? Bankman-Fried was an MIT graduate and a son of two tenured professors at Stanford Law School. I mean, this is a kid who, like, like he's got this whole, like, wonder kid personality. Um, but, like, his parents were Stanford professors. Like, this is somebody who was not, you know, like, lacking in life and in opportunities. He was a, a hotshot at a, at a Wall Street firm for many years, and, and I'm sure he, he knows his way uh, around Silicon Valley as well. He cultivated an image of a tech nerd genius wearing t-shirts and shorts, seemingly unconcerned with personal hygiene, and sleeping on beanbag chairs in the office. In a world where billionaires flaunt the most obscene symbols of wealth, a frizzy-haired billionaire driving a regular Toyota sedan began getting a lot of praise for his outward simplicity. He had this way of being kind of disrespectful in a way that just made everyone love him more. No matter the occasion, he'd wear khaki shorts, an FTX t-shirt, never combed his hair, and he actually played video games during important meetings which you'd think might be kind of a turnoff. But when Sequoia, the venture capital firm, found out that Sam had been playing League of Legends while pitching them, their reaction was just like, oh, my God, we love this guy. How do we give him hundreds of millions of more dollars? Many of the elite actually tend to see the kind of arrogance exhibited by people like SBF who have the ego to adopt an acronym as their name. They tend to mistake it for, like, wisdom or some some affirmation of, of uh, secret genius that these people have. Especially since the value of crypto is predicated upon hype, it would require somebody with unearned confidence of that magnitude to create an exchange like, uh, like FTX. Whether they wear t-shirts or $5,000 suits, billionaires are still billionaires. Even if they don't have 18 karat gold faucets, even if they dress simply and look disheveled, they still agree on one thing, that they have the God-given right to screw over the rest of us. In the case of Bankman Freed, he was actually anything but modest. In fact, the Crypto King's arrogance was his own worst enemy. He almost single-handedly sank his own case, both in his disdainful public statements and catastrophic courtroom testimony. But under questioning from prosecution, he seemed that he couldn't remember anything. He answered, I don't recall, 140 times. He would take long pauses and be like, I'm not sure about that. One thing that really uh, struck me about this, about this whole case is uh, the way that Sam Bankman-Fried was uh, describing that the conditions of his, of his imprisonment as, as unfair because they didn't allow him access to a laptop, because they didn't... Uh, you know, allow him access to uh, uh, enough access to his lawyers and so on, as if somehow um, his case is different from any of the other thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of working people that are 
you know, push through that, that same prison um, every single year. He thinks that he's entitled to uh, a cushy um, Silicon Valley mansion to, to serve his, his time in and, and prepare his case out of. Yeah, you know, the way that Sam Bagman Fried conducted himself both prior to trial and prior to his rest and then all the way through to the end of the trial, I think really does show something about the arrogance of Wall Street, of big business and of the, the people who, who run Wall Street. Um, you know, this capitalist system tends to reward people who have borderline psychotic behaviors, who look out only for themselves, who think nothing about defrauding regular people, who think nothing of making billions of dollars on pure lies and, and gameplay. And I think Sam Bankman-Fried was one of these people who had you know, psychotic, effectively, tendencies, uh, who was completely willing to defraud people, to say whatever it took in order to keep his billion dollar uh, shell game going. But I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried was so arrogant uh, that he called uh, two reporters, he called a certain part of the crypto investors, quote, dumb motherfuckers, end quote. That's his wording about people investing in his cryptocurrency scheme. He also uh, told a reporter prior to his arrest, quote, fuck regulators, end quote, which I think shows just the level, the degree, the depth of uh, of callousness or just disregard that he had for uh, regulators, for the rule of law, for rules in general. It, they, he didn't think that they applied to him. He thought that he could do whatever he wanted to do, whatever he needed to do to make billions and billions of dollars. He was used to this feeling of invulnerability. And and yeah, it says a lot that he was willing to, to gamble on a, on a jury trial rather than take a deal. Um, but again, um, yeah, speaks to his arrogance, really, uh, that thinking he could game the system once more like he has up till now, um, even though it ultimately blew up, blew up in his face. So much for being a boy genius. But Sam Bankman fried wasn't alone in this. It was also allegedly his parents and his associates. It was the politicians and celebrities who helped pave the way for him. And most importantly, it was the institutions that for so long looked the other way. Bankman-Fried has asserted that his parents, Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried, were not involved in the giant robbery. But a lawsuit claims that both Bankman and Fried discussed with their son transferring a $10 million cash gift and a $16.4 million property in the Bahamas to them. So according to the lawsuit, mom and pop either knew or ignored bright red flags that indicated their son and his business partners were, quote, orchestrating a vast fraudulent scheme, end quote. In addition, the lawsuit claims that Freed, who is incidentally a professor of legal ethics, get that, a <laughs> professor of legal ethics, also acted as an advisor to her son, especially when it came to political donations. Bachman Freed was publicly and lavishly held aloft by a number of celebrities, such as NFL star Tom Brady, supermodel Giselle Bunchen, and NBA star Steph Curry. Bankman Freed paid Tom Brady $55 million for 60 hours of advertising work and Steph Curry $35 million similarly for a few hours of work. In 2022, Curb Your Enthusiasm creator Larry David starred in a Super Bowl commercial for the crypto platform. FTX spent many millions of dollars on superstar celebrities to sell the cryptocurrency exchange to ordinary people 
And now those who collectively lost billions on the scheme are infuriated about it. Very pissed off at these YouTube fluffers who have been promoting FTX over the past year or so. All paid eye-watering amounts of money to promote this garbage. I can't even begin to share how devastated and sorry I am. A-list celebrities plus Kevin O'Leary told you what a great firm it was. I don't think that guy has a, an evil bone in his body. Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, is going around and in a despicable way he's still standing up for sam bankman Fried. you can love him or hate him given what's happened but he was one of the most brilliant traders in the crypto universe tom brady giselle bunchen larry david naomi osaka and steph curry are among the celebrities accused in a class action lawsuit class action lawsuit alleging that the crypto platform ftx misled customers leading to billions of dollars in losses if you had money there if you trusted them if you played by the rules your money's gone people wanted answers both democratic and republican politicians were only too happy to prop up bankman fried and they lapped up his massive political donations of the tens of millions of dollars bankman fried gave to political campaigns 27 million dollars went to protect our future a Democratic Party-aligned super PAC that claims it was, quote, designed to help elect candidates who will be champions for pandemic prevention, end quote. The group calls for, quote, unquote, effective altruism, a supposedly philanthropic idea that Bankman Freed publicly supported, which is every bit as phony as it sounds, and which claims to be premised on the use of reason and data to allocate money. Bankman Freed liked to talk about how he wanted to make as much money as possible so he could give it away and change the world for the better. I think this was the first time that I heard the term effective altruism used. Uh, and I know it's like kind of the guiding principle that they claimed was behind this like big crypto, basically Ponzi scheme. He had this like whole persona around it that had been created around like, oh, this is a guy who's like using crypto for good, for ca like capital for good, and yet he, like, one of the things that he invested in was this like multi-million dollar house in the Bahamas that he was like putting up his friends and his parents and you know uh, the people in his life in. Just looking at the way that he spent his money, it's the way that I would say pretty much any millionaire or billionaire spends their money. It's like greed is always the priority over any type of altruism, effective or not. Apparently, the purpose of this effective altruism is to maximize the amount of positive impact a single person could have on the world. I think it's safe to say that Bankman Freed showed wild success in minimizing his positive impact on the world while maximizing his own wealth accumulation, at least until the jig was up. The whole well, reason what I'm trying to point out is that place. very little has actually gotten to any charity. Oh, I think hundreds of millions have gotten to charities. Okay, hundreds of millions. But I think that's right. Sort of the, you know, full 25 or some odd billion. Well, but that wasn't 25 just billion. As much, just as much charity went to uh, property in the Bahamas. I think we can sort of equivocate there. Who were beneficiaries of this supposed altruism? Bankman Freed contributed the individual maximum of $5,800 to more than a dozen members of Congress, including Senators Debbie Stabenow, a Michigan Democrat, and John Boozman, an Arkansas Republican who led the Senate committee that has a role in regulating, or should we say deregulating, cryptocurrency. Other politicians that received maximum donations from Bankman Freed include Democratic Senators Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, 
and Cory Booker of New Jersey, as well as Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. Altogether, Bankman-Fried donated nearly $40 million each to Democrats and Republicans in the 2022 election cycle alone. One of Bankman-Fried's largest campaign donations, a cool $5.2 million, was in 2020 to none other than presidential candidate Joe Biden and to groups supporting him. Those donations made Bankman-Fried the number two on a Wall Street Journal list of CEOs backing Biden that year. Another recent massive shift of wealth from small investors to large investors has taken place under the umbrella of an online stock trading app, absurdly but not accidentally misnamed Robinhood. It was founded in 2013 by Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bhatt and marketed under the progressive heading of democratizing finance. Robinhood attracted millions of young and first-time investors with its no-fee, one-click trading, its no-account minimums, its easy access to complex investment products, and features like falling confetti and emoji-filled phone notifications that made it feel like some kind of cool game. Robinhood was also sold seductively on a fake progressive basis, as a kind of playfield leveling alternative to the brutal rule of billionaires on the traditional Wall Street trading floor. They succeeded in turning into a cultural sensation and Silicon Valley darling, with celebrities like Bill Clinton, Elton John, George Clooney, and Bono publicly praising it and helping it climb to a lofty $8.3 billion valuation. Tenev and Bot became overnight billionaires. At the core of Robin Hood's business model is something that is at the core of capitalism itself. Under capitalism, corporations and their wealthy investors make money when they're able to get billions of working people to buy their products, which of course have been created by those same billions of working people while being paid less than the value of their labor. So every corporation, every multimillionaire and billionaire in the world has a powerful incentive to con working people into buying more by hook or by crook even when, perhaps especially when, the real value of what's on offer is highly questionable. For all its egalitarian sheen, Robinhood is no different. Robinhood does not charge fees for trading, but the richest investors of Robinhood are still the ones who profit if their customers trade more. Each time a Robinhood customer trades, Wall Street firms buy or sell the shares and determine what price the customer gets. These firms pay Robinhood for the right to do this because they then engage in a form of arbitrage by trying to buy or sell the stock for a profit over what they give the Robinhood customer. This practice is not new, and retail brokers such as E-Trade and Charles Schwab also do it. But Robinhood's rich investors actually make significantly more money than E-Trade and other companies for each stock share and options contract sent to the professional trading firms the very opposite of how this supposedly grassroots system has been marketed. So Robin Hood turned out to be the sheriff of Nottingham instead, if you remember the villain of the traditional tale, exploiting the hell out of ordinary people, not sharing the wealth. Robin Hood's carefully marketed appeal to ordinary people, especially young investors, was not surprising. This was no Charles Schwab, a multinational company and the largest publicly traded U.S. brokerage firm, 10th on the list of largest U.S. banks in the United States with $7 trillion in client assets, while Charles Schwab's average customer has a $350,000 portfolio, the average Robinhood customer has invested $4,500. Robinhood had over 21 million customers, overwhelmingly small investors, 
overwhelmingly young and inexperienced, mostly ordinary middle class or even working class people. Many handed over their pandemic stimulus checks and savings in search of the hyped up economic hope. I had coworkers that like passed around that they like started a Robin Hood investment like thing and they were asking other like coworkers that were going around my work floor like, do you want to invest with us? Do you want to just like throw in, you know, thousands of dollars into this like investment pool with us? I think that's a really appealing narrative, especially for working class people who are like struggling to pay off student loans or want to buy a house someday so they can afford to live in the city they work in. I think it's a very like genuine, um, honest feeling to sort of feel like, oh, this is like my one chance of like having some sort of sense of financial freedom. Robinhood channeled that one-time stimulus money of these young people into the cryptocurrency bubble. Cryptocurrency as a whole was also sold as a lifeline to black communities. The black population has been bombarded with marketing and ads featuring celebrities such as LeBron James and Spike Lee. But if you want to make history, you got to call your own shots. The industry made it clear, if you didn't get in, well, you might just be missing out. NFTs, this is becoming a alternative economy. It's a huge opportunity for people who look like us, however. We got to get in where we can fit in. When the crypto stocks plunged, many of the ordinary people who put money into crypto through Robinhood and other platforms were left with crushing losses. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's working class people that listen to this, that sort of you know, want to have this sense of financial freedom and security, and then their money's gone and there's nothing they can do about it. Robinhood's assets fell by $38 billion last year. That represents a net transfer of wealth from those 21 million people to the big investors who cleverly manipulated the stock market for their own enrichment and ruthlessly bamboozled ordinary people. In an especially dark and tragic outcome, in the summer of 2020, Alex Kearns, 20, a college student in Nebraska, killed himself after he logged into Robinhood and saw that his balance had dropped to negative $730,000. Last year's story around the retail company Bed Bath & Beyond is yet another cautionary tale of how capitalism enables a few people to make a killing as it destroys the lives of many others. Ryan Cohen, billionaire founder of online pet food company Chewy and CEO of gaming merchandise retailer GameStop, and Jake Freeman, 20-year-old University of Southern California student, manipulated the stocks of Bed Bath & Beyond for their own ends last year by creating a social media fever based on misleading and exaggerated information. This practice is called pump and dump, and it's a form of securities fraud that involves artificially inflating the price of an owned stock through false and misleading positive statements, the pump, in order to sell the cheaply purchased stock at a higher price, the dump. Cohen and Freeman bought Bed Bath stocks when they were trading very low, and led an army of small and inexperienced investors, mostly young, non-wealthy people, to buy masses of the company's stocks. The stock surged from $5 to more than $480 based on the orchestrated frenzy of social media hype, giving birth to the phrase meme stock. Once the buying frenzy peaked, Cohen and Freeman immediately sold all their stock and the stock nosedived to $11. Cohen made $178 million, and Freeman, $110 million. And once again, ordinary people got robbed. There was no investigation into how much the multitude of other mainly small investors, aka working people, lost. 
Bed Bath & Beyond ended up laying off 20% of its workforce and closing 150 stores. On September 2nd last year, Gustavo Arnal, Bed Bath & Beyond CFO at the time, committed suicide at his $18,500 a month apartment in New York, recording at least one casualty at the top this time. The corporation filed for bankruptcy in April this year. The capitalist system is so riddled with scams, scandals, rip-offs, and rigs by the super-rich on Wall Street that we could barely scratch the surface here in one show. In a future episode, we'll talk about how the Great Recession and subprime mortgage crisis was one giant scam, though instead of being centered around a few individuals, it was a massive rip-off by many of the world's biggest financial institutions and their political representatives. While a few people were convicted, not one top Wall Street executive actually responsible for this crisis went to prison for having thrown the world economy into a tailspin and shattering hundreds of millions of lives. Just like after the 2008 crisis, there wasn't a single uh, auto CEO or, or real estate CEO who, who, you know, who saw a minute of jail time. I don't think there's going to be uh, any consequences uh, like that for the architects of this crisis. It's, it's incredible how the, 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 uh, the criminal system, the criminal justice system is, is designed to exploit the most indigent, the most downtrodden. Yeah, anyway, long story short, I, I, I think it's absolutely unfair. The millions of American working people who got foreclosed on never got their homes back. Instead, the billionaires got bailed out through a bipartisan effort under first George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. Capitalism is an ongoing global scam on working and poor people in which working people have most of the wealth taken from them that they produce through their hard work. That's what profits are. And while there is intrigue and high drama and a special kind of shamefulness to some of these cases of high-profile swindling, the ordinary day-to-day -day functioning of capitalism is despicable. It destroys far more lives than these scandals do and is rapidly destroying the planet as well. I'm sure um, many more uh, tech workers would much be rather set to the task of solving the climate crisis, of figuring out uh, solutions, uh, engineering solutions to converting our economy to a sustainable uh, future, creating, uh, you know, moving us to renewable energy. Um, but instead, because of the way the uh, uh, the capitalist economy works, where it's only seeking profits. Instead, they're building up uh, cryptocurrency financial marketplaces that disappear within a year, or they're creating five different competing AI chatbots, right? None of these are going to help us solve the very real crises that are facing us. And the so-called criminal justice system isn't there to defend us, but rather to protect the interests of the billionaires despite all their crimes. It has no mercy for ordinary people who are preyed upon or act out of desperation. As a socialist and also as a lawyer representing working people uh, in criminal prosecutions, I have a lot of thoughts about the, the criminal justice system. You know, I think to start, we have to recognize that capitalism is ultimately the source of so much misery in our society, so much drug addiction, so much violence, so much desperation that drives criminal behavior that capitalism has to do something about all of those negative things that it causes, all of these, these negative experiences that capitalism is, is sort of the root source for. And the criminal justice system is 
uh, the capitalist system's efforts to try to do something about violence, about desperation, about drug abuse and other social ills. And the criminal justice system it does a very bad job at actually addressing any of those social ills. It doesn't create justice for victims. It doesn't rehabilitate drug offenders. It doesn't uh, enable people who engage in, in petty theft or burglary to find other types of work. All the criminal justice system does is maintain the capitalist system's stability. Mm -hmm. It effectively operates as a toxic waste storage unit for all of the social ills that capitalism creates. Um, and any efforts towards rehabilitation or towards trying to create, quote, justice for victims is secondary to the system's primary goal which is to try and maintain the stability and the legitimacy of the capitalist system. So what are the lessons from Bankman Freed and the corporate fraudsters? For the working class, there are no shortcuts. For us to change our lives for the better, we need to get organized and fight back and not allow ourselves to be led down the garden path of some billionaire's get-rich-quick scheme. Wall Street is a casino. And no matter what they promise us at the card table, at the end of the day, the house takes virtually all the profits. Another lesson is that capitalism is a zero-sum game, meaning that when a billionaire gets rich on a stock market, it inevitably means a whole lot of ordinary people got fucked over. This is, by its nature, a sociopathic, parasitic system. Rather than buying into this house of cards, the working class needs to get organized on a mass scale. We can learn from the heroic general strikes and sit-down strikes of the 1930s. And we can do what they tried, but unfortunately failed to do. Build a new party for the working class that will fight for our interests, not only in elections, but in mass movements and in the workplace. We won't win against the Wall Street gangsters by playing their game. Instead, we need to take what's ours and bring the top 500 corporations into democratic public ownership, run by working people, and get rid of the casino once and for all. On Strike is a production of Workers Strike Back, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Workers Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. Find out more at workerstrikeback.org and donate, and look for us on Patreon to support our work. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people, funded entirely by working people. See you next week. Solidarity.